With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Support for this podcast comes from the patrons at patreon.com slash FML FPL. Okay, welcome to another FML FPL Fireside Chat. I am pleased to welcome writer, managing editor at Statsbomb, and the host of the Double Pivot Podcast, Mike Goodman. Hey, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> How's your international break going? I guess it's ending now. It is ending now. Um, you know, before I had kids, international break was the uh, the day on the weekend where I could sleep in. That doesn't really happen anymore. Mm. So um, I'm going to be up anyway. Let's get back to some soccer. Yeah. Figures. I always wondered if like writers and journalists actually got a break during international break or not. But yeah, I guess kids. A little, I mean, yeah. a little bit. Your workflow changes to some degree, but you know, the soccer keeps getting played. Right. So let's start with a little bit of background about you, who you are. So, how'd you come to get into football? How'd you find yourself supporting Everton, and and what led you down the statistics path? So sure. So those things are. A little intertwined, actually. Um, I, I'm, you know, growing up in America, I've always been a, a sports fan. But m- my youth, it was mostly American sports, baseball, you know, f- American football, basketball, the whole, the whole mm-hmm. list. Um, I was a fan of the U.S. national team, but not much beyond that. And then in like, I was in, I was in college around 2004, 2005, and it started getting a little easier to watch games. And then after I graduated in 2006, I was a professional poker player for a couple of years. So I was home all day on my laptop, right. you know. And the 2006 World Cup was that summer, and I was—I mean, I watched every minute of every match um, because that would be what I had on in the background. And from that point on, um, I, w- I was pretty hooked. It sort of coincided with the rise of, of Fox Soccer Channel in the U.S., so I was able to watch a ton of games. Um, and I, like, as the poker playing might indicate, I've always uh, sort of perceived the world through a statistical lens in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I ended up working in finance, I ended up writing about finance, and then, you know, it's sort of the confluence of circumstances. I saw that at the time, this is now almost a decade later, around 2013, 2014, there wasn't a lot of stats writing about soccer and there wasn't a lot of stats availability. And I was like, oh, I can, I can do that. Um, so there were a handful of people, Ted Knutson, who's now obviously the, the, the founder and CEO of StatsBomb, guys like Simon Gleave and Colin Trainer, um, were all sort of starting and working in public writing about soccer and stats. So I, I, I got into that, and then I f- sort of followed the writing trail uh, into media. Wow. Yeah, very cool. So I have to assume, I mean, I don't want to assume, but you must play fantasy sports. Are you used to, at least? I, I used to to some degree. That, that um, background is just like, you got to be in fantasy at some point. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that that's exactly right. Um, so yeah, to some degree I did. As it became my job, I started doing it, Less right, 
Um, but yes, uh, I, I, I'm certainly well aware of fantasy sports. I'm well aware of daily fantasy as well. You know, it sort of comes with being in the industry, but it did sort of start to become like a busman's holiday. Um, what, when you start working, you know, I live every day, like I'm buried in, in numbers and statistics. Right. So, so when I'm not doing my job now, I'm like way more likely to, I don't know, watch reality TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything but more numbers, I see. So what about Everton? Where did Everton come from? It was, was it Tim Howard, Landon Donovan, or...? It was, it, was, it, was a, it was two things. One was Tim Howard, and the other one was I was very conscious of the fact that my first sports love is the Yankees. Um, so I grew up with the, like, the richest team in baseball and wanted to pick a team that was not particularly rich and not particularly... Um, uh, uh, like a powerhouse, but that right. was still competitive. So, so ever so the combination of that and and Tim Howard drew me to Everton. That makes sense. I appreciate the fact that you didn't just go straight for Manchester United there. Natural, <laughs> yeah. natural bridge. Uh, one of well, I will say one of the funniest um, writing experiences of my life was getting a comment on a negative piece I wrote about Liverpool that was accused me of accusing me of using my influence to sabotage Fenway Sports Group because of my Everton and Yankee oh fandom. Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. I love the connection. Well, I'm a Mets <laughs> fan from New York and a Liverpool supporter, so it's totally irrelevant who their owners are to me. Right, there you go. All right, so I didn't really want to start with this topic, but you know, Pochettino is just sacked and they just <laughs> Spurs hired Mourinho, so I think we should start with this topic. Um I guess from you know fantasy relevance perspective, I, I what I would ask you is to describe sort of Mourinho football statistically. Like, how does a Mourinho team create goals? How do they score goals? How well, good are, a, how good are they at preventing goals? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so the ideal Mourinho team is actually one we haven't seen in a number of years at this point. Right, but. What they do is they muddy up the game something fierce. Um, they destroy midfield. A, a good Mourinho side does not let the opposition ever have control in midfield. And subsequent to that, they, they try to create a couple of very good chances, um, usually moving the ball down the field quickly and you know combining with a forward and a wide striker. What this often leads to um, is somewhat low event games, especially when you're playing against another good team. What, what Mourinho really wants to do is he doesn't care if his team doesn't have a lot of shots as long as the other team also doesn't have a lot of shots, uh, which is obviously not particularly great for, for fantasy purposes. I mean, yeah. there have been uh, examples of, of his teams in the, in the more distant past when they, when they have real talent advantages. They will be good attacking. Like, his Real Madrid teams, despite Mourinho's reputation, were quite attacking and fun to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even Diego Costa and Hazard in the yeah. most recent Chelsea, that, like that one year, I think Costa was over 20 goals, Hazard put up huge numbers, you know, so. Yes. Now, now you will also find like what you should not expect is a, a midfielder getting forward and scoring a bunch of goals. Um, fullbacks having a lot of assists. Well, Ivanovic did at Chelsea when, at his peak, but at most one fullback. So you should be able to tell fairly quickly into his time at Spurs which side he will he will release right. to be an attacking fullback, and the other side will be will be held pretty closely in reserve. 
Got it. Very interesting. So how do you measure, like like you said, muddying up a midfield? Like what, what numbers do you look at to, I mean, to there's, see that? There's a, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but I mean – what I what you look at for, um, I mean the, the 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 most newfangled way to look about it. Let's let's start from there. Is um, you look at possession chains. Uh, how many different possessions are there in a match, and why? And, and what you see is that Mourinho sides just don't allow matches where there are lots where there's a lot of up and down. Right, so there aren't possessions going back and forth. I see. Yeah. Um, but you, I mean, you can do it in more simplistic ways too. You can just look at the number of passes played in, 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 in matches that Mourinho manages, or at the end of the day, just like the number of shots taken. And because you work backwards, it's like, well, if teams aren't creating a lot of shots, it means they're not having a lot of sustained possession and they aren't man, and they aren't managing to counteract that with quick attacks. And, and Mourinho teams at their peak, when they're playing well, really can do both of those things. Prevent quick attacks and prevent sustained possession. Um, but again, like even the year at United where he coached them to second place, that was not a vintage Mourinho side at all. They were not all that strong defensively and were consistently bailed out by De Gea in goal. So that season's like a flagpole for the st- statistics crowd, right? Where everyone's like, they're yes. going to regress. They're actually bad. And then it happened. I mean, that's, that, that's right. And, and look, these things get somewhat complicated because the, by the end of Mourinho's, the, the next year at United, United had not only regressed, but then as everything imploded, they were playing well below their numbers. Right. So there's always kind of a balance to these things, but yes, that, that was a particularly clear statistical case that second place year where it was, uh, I mean, it was like blaring warning, warning signs in the numbers that, not so much an attack, but in defense, David De Gea just had this incredible season, um, and and you know gave up way fewer goals than you would usually expect. Right. So, what does this mean defensively for Spurs? I think the large media narrative around Mourinho is that like he parks a bus, he's super conservative, really defensively sound, lots of clean sheets, which you know. I recognize it doesn't really matter for most people, but it matters in fantasy. Lots of sure, clean sheets. Sure. So, so do you think? Do you see Spurs as like you know? Are they going to be a defensive force all of a sudden overnight, or is that kind of I a myth? I think they'll be better, right? And I think they'll be better because you look at the names of the players they have, and they should be pretty good defensively. And the reality is, is that they have been a terrible defensive team this year. I don't think people realize just how bad they've been this year, but also the the back half of last season as well. How bad? Tell us. Um, like bottom five in the league oh this year? Oh my god, like, wow. Like really bad. Um, they just, you know, as, the, as their midfield evaporated last season... What ended up happening last year was they stopped being able to keep the ball out of their own third, and teams began moving very easily through the midfield. And again, you can measure this in all sorts of different ways, looking at, at, at you know, some of them that verge almost on tactical scouting, right? Looking at where teams are moving the ball through, how often they're being able to pass it. But then you can just look at, like, basic things, like, you know, the, the number of shots that they conceded went up. The right. number of passes into their own box that they conceded went up. But what ended what last year, they were consistently bailed out by Toby Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen, who had great seasons. Um, 
So you would have a lot of these very dangerous passages of play that showed up very clearly in the numbers and in not shots or in blocked shots or, you know, in, in, in shots that were not as dangerous as they could have been. This season, that has also evaporated. So they've just oh, top to bottom been a very poor defensive team. And that is something that I, I would expect Mourinho to solve. And I would expect him, at least for starters, to solve it at the expense of an already very mediocre attack. Right. So how do you judge, how are you judging like a team's defense? Like, are you looking at expected goals allowed? Is that the, is that the best number or the preferred That's number? That's the first. That's the first number. Uh, and, then, always, and then what other things do you look at? Sure. So um, that is that is the first number you're looking at is expected goals allowed. Just what shots are they giving up and how good are they and how many of them are there? Right. When you take, I, I think it's useful, right, to look at Spurs as an example because when you take a step back from that, what you look at is okay. How often are teams moving down the field against you, and are they doing it quickly? Now. To some degree, that, that gets baked into expected goal numbers, right? Like a lot of expected goal models take into account things like the speed of the move that led to the shot. Right. But you, what you want to be able to do is look at it sort of stylistically as well. So you can tell where on the field are things breaking down. So you look at all the, the defensive action that the teams can take. You look, And that's the obvious ones, tackles, interceptions, blocks, those kinds of things. But also stats bomb tracks pressures, which is just... Um, you know, are defenders pressuring the the ball? Um, are they are they contesting a player having the ball? And that gives you a pretty good um, numerical representation of where on the field teams are doing things. So then after that, what you're looking at is you're looking at various kinds of of, of pressing numbers, right? You want to look at again stylistically. Do teams defend far up the field? Do they defend in their own third? You can do it either way, but you want to look at what a team is doing. So you can look at, you know, there's a stat called PPDA, which is um, passes per defensive uh, per defensive action, right? Right. Or passes allowed per defensive action, whatever it is. And it's literally looking at how many passes you allow before you attempt a defensive action. Um, you can look at the average distance from your own goal of a defensive action. Um and there's a couple of other ones that you can mix in there. But again, the basic idea is, okay, where on the field are you defending? Because once you understand that to a certain degree, you understand, okay, what do good defensive numbers look like? If we're trying to press, what you want to see is very few shots given up, but it's okay if those shots are of higher quality. That's, that's natural for a press. If you're not pressing, what you want to make sure you see is very low average shot quality because you're being willing to give up teams taking relatively unpressured 30 yarders against you as long as you're dropping behind the ball. Um, so once you figure it out stylistically, then that leads you to being able to tell, okay, are things working? And if not, where are they breaking down? And what we saw with I'll, – I'll, I'll keep using Spurs as my test case – over the last couple of years, the press evaporated. Um, so teams were able to move the ball up the field fairly quickly against Spurs. Spurs stopped being as good at preventing a number of shots. But again, because their center backs played well, it didn't get as bad as it could have um, until now, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, right, until it reached the breaking point. Right. Um, so do, does StatsBomb look at clean sheets? Does anybody look at clean sheets other than people who play fantasy? <laughs> like, I'm wondering if there's a correlation there or if it's just so, something I that's mean, ignored, the, the really. Answer, the answer is clean sheets are going... 
what you want to do is – I mean it's understandable why that's an important category for fantasy. But really what you want to do is just find the best, bo- you know, the best bottom line defensive teams. And those are the ones that are most likely going to get you clean sheets. Um, there is nothing that makes – like there is nothing you can find that is going to make two comparably sound defensive teams – be meaningfully better or worse at keeping clean sheets. There are like little things on the margins. Um, well, my, but the prime example for us, and this actually is related to a Kaylee guest pod from last season, but he was he was going off about how good Wolves are at defending. They were, yes. I think, when he came on, and maybe maybe throughout the rest of the season, they they were the third, clearly the third best defense in the Premier League. They ended up only keeping nine clean sheets, and you know, on my you know basic sort of like Opta stats, they were uh, tied for. Oh no, they were third most in defensive errors. So to me, that's like you know, I'm trying to reason out why a good defensive team would keep a few clean sheets. I'm like, well, Patricio seems kind of bad, and their center backs might be kind of bad. So even though their structure and shape is good, maybe that's leading to not many clean sheets. I think you got to be. Careful when you make those assumptions. Okay. Um, sometimes, I mean, I, I, I actually think it might be a little defensible about Patricio, and he certainly started this year actually having a fairly weak open weak opening month or six weeks of the season. Although it, the, both Wolves and him have since stabilized. Right. But I, you got to the thing you have to be careful about is painting. Stories on past data that are going to continue into the future because sometimes a mistake is just a mistake and a team that is a good defensive team but asks themselves to defend a lot is naturally going to have a couple of more mistakes than a team – Look, so one thing that you're seeing with Wolves specifically is the brand of defense they play involves not having the ball. So – that makes you more susceptible to defensive errors. Whereas a brand of defense that is predicated on keeping possession of the ball a lot, and that's a little bit like what Manchester United are this season, they're actually a fairly good defensive team. But a lot of it is because, or Leicester City is another good example, they keep the ball, um, and so the other team doesn't have a chance to attack them, really. Now, those teams... Their mistakes are not going to show up as defensive errors. Their mistakes are going to show up as turnovers, as getting you know a, a dangerous pass that gets intercepted, a, a tackle. But the 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 defensive vulnerability is no less. It's just captured in a different. Stack. I understand. That's that's good. You caught me, and I'm glad you caught me. <laughs> I mean, like, it's sort I of think, like baseball I mean, errors. I mean, I don't want to yes. alienate our fan base who probably 50 percent don't know what baseball is, but yeah, it, it's similar to me. Right. No, I think that that's a, that's a very similar way to look at it. It's also, it's similar to own goals, right? Like, there's nothing really persistent statistically about own goals, but it's always tempting to look at a team that's given up a bunch of old go- own goals and tell a story about why, right? Right. But honestly, if you just predicted like completely randomly about own goals, you're going to do better than if you tried to like, predict based on the amount of own goals the team has given up. Right, so you're saying basically Wolves actually were an elite defensive team last season and even though their clean sheet numbers were pretty low comparatively, like we should 
maybe expect yeah. that to be better this season, I guess. That and- that would be my ex- – so my expectation would be that if Wolves played the same kind of defense this season that they did last season, they would have more clean sheets. Right. Now, the question of whether or not their defense will, will play to the same level is, is a, an interesting and complicated one. I mean, just like sort of for everybody, right? Yeah. Coming into a new season, what persists and what doesn't. But yeah, if if, if you were to say to me the Wolves were going to play exactly the same level of defense this year that they did last year, I would predict them to have more clean sheets. Basically, got it. All right, something to, something to think about there. Um, let's maybe move to Leicester and just you know more attacking side and Team XG and stuff like that. So a, a lot of people are talking about Vardy and Lester and Fantasy. Everyone's bringing in all their midfielders, Tielemans, Madison, Harvey Barnes, etc., defenders. So just starting with Vardy, I mean, his conversion rate is ridiculously high. Like, is it yeah, possible that he can sustain hot finishing? No. Is he historic? <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> no, this, but, one, this but, one's easy. No, but, but historically, he he does like overperform his xG, right? Like he would yeah, be just, just just not by this much. Not by I, this I mean, much. Yeah. The degree that he is finishing this year is like significantly beyond what Messi does on a regular basis. Um, that's. Even if you want to assume that he is a better than XG finisher, which I think is is a defensible assumption, he's not this much better. Right. Um, so you would, which is not to say that like you expect him to all of a sudden have his luck even out. That's not how luck works. But you would expect going forward him to be mildly better than his expected goals, not hugely better. Um, right. So someone so, doesn't really come back. Down to their XG, you're saying? This is okay. So the 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 concept of gambler's fallacy yeah. is is a tricky one. Um, you know the 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 way it is traditionally explained is it doesn't matter how many times you flipped heads if when you flip a coin, right? The next time you're still fifty fifty to flip tails. So always looking forward, you would expect a player to perform roughly to their XG. If you want to make the argument that Vardy would perform a little bit over, I think that's fine as well. But what that means is that a player is more or less equally likely to get lucky and unlucky. So eventually, you, you run it back enough times, their numbers will converge to their expected goals numbers. But you don't expect luck last week to be, count, to be counteracted by unluckiness this week. I think I understand. Yeah, it's 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 one of those tricky like like probability concepts that um, is is annoying at the best of times. But um, you know, it's I mean, I'm talking around the term regression to the mean, right? Yeah. All that re- all that regression to the mean means is that eventually you would expect to converge to your numbers the going forwards because you keep running it, running it you keep flipping the coin eventually you get about half of heads and half of tails but like there will be times where you flip seven heads in a row and there will be time when you flip times when you flip seven tails in a row but doing one does not predict that you will then do the other right and and it's like so for Vardy just looking at his numbers he has around like a, a six goal lead <laughs> over his XG, roughly. And so he's not probably going to come back down to level his I mean, XG. Who, he just I mean, had, right? There's, yeah. there's tons of variance in, yeah. in finishing numbers, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, you wouldn't want to, like, the, your default prediction going forward for the rest of this season is that if he's 
plus six to his expected goals total now, he will be plus six to his expected exactly. goal total. Yeah, at that's the end what of I was season. trying to say, basically. Yeah. 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 Now, the, the 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 sheer amount of noise in finishing means that like that prediction is not particularly specific, and honestly, most of the time he will move around all over the place. Um, but that is sort of conceptually how you want to think about things, right? And then so this is maybe more, you know, football. In, I feel like finishing is just like a whole world of like luck, and we don't even know that much about finishing. That's my my perspective on it, but. It's. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I, I will say that traditionally, what we say in in, in analytics, right, is that fin- there is not really a lot of finishing skill. That most of what goes into scoring goals is is the how good are the shots you take. But that's not like exactly true. What we really mean is that nobody takes enough shots to determine who has finishing skill and who doesn't, and that finishing skill is most often mostly drowned out. By noise, while the level of shots you were taking is not right, and so I wanted to move to shots. So that's yes. that's what, and I think Vardy is a really interesting dude when it comes to that, also because he takes so few shots for a prolific goal scorer on a top four side, number nine, etc. He's only taking two shots per ninety. I'm wondering, like, can he shoot more? Like, is shooting that much of a skill that? It's he an, doesn't just, really yeah. learn how to take more shots because well, so he's you know, a, so low. He's a very specific stylistic striker, right? Like the thing mm-hmm. he does is get in behind the defense and get really good shots. Like that's what he does. And that that is a persistent skill. That is something you can look at the you can look at a player over the years and and point it out and say that's, you know, something how he plays. As he's gotten older, his shot totals have decreased a little bit, but that thing that he does remains. Um, and now, the, like the question is, is that the best way to be a striker? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think most of the great strikers tend to get four or five shots a game. He doesn't. At the same time, when he's so good at the thing he does, like I, I think it makes sense to play to his strength. Um, right, but it is a it is a weird profile for a player for sure. Yeah, and then so I think that transitions also just to Leicester as a whole, who are you know they've been you know racking up points, they're looking good, they beat some Southampton nine nil, you know all this stuff. But right. their XG as a team is still like pretty bad. Yeah, they're and, not. I mean they they are. They're not a particularly ambitious attacking team. They are a, they are very conservative in possession, um, and it's working for them. And part of what that leads to is they're a very very good defensive team. Um, but yes, the, I mean, I, part of Vardy's low shot titles are just sort of endemic of a of a team that seeks to control the ball and control midfield and not take many adventurous forays into the final third. Um, yeah, and I was wondering about if there's something with XG that's sort of like missing on Leicester in the sense that like, are they playing lots of dangerous balls that get cut out or cleared by the keeper? No, and then, I mean, you know, if they go through, it's a big chance, but they're not racking up XG because they don't lead to a lot of shots or something like that. I mean, that's a fair question, and that's something that we sort of think about and worry about 
a good deal when when we sort of talk about what is good about XG, what does it miss, where can it be improved, those kinds of things. I don't think that's the case with Leicester. Okay. I honestly just think that, that Leicester specifically is a pretty conservative team. Um, there are other teams over the years that you can sometimes make that argument with. Um, I just I wouldn't apply it to Leicester this season. Got it. Okay, good to know. Yeah, they they from our eyes, like we talk about it on our pod a lot. Like it, it was sort of like. Rodgers was setting them up extremely conservatively and defensively in the yes. you know big six matches or even in in the first week against Wolves and the hypothesis was basically like well maybe the Vardy and them will start scoring a lot of goals in their good run of fixtures now and that's that's kind of where we are right now in fantasy I where mean, everyone's it's, it's bringing possible. all their players in yeah it's it's definitely possible and there has sort of encouragingly been uh, a, ten, uh, a tendency with Rodgers in, in, in recent weeks to, you know, he started the season playing Madison on the left along with three other central midfielders. Yeah. And he has, as the season has gone on, shown more of a willingness to play Madison centrally and then play Iosi Perez and Harvey Barnes. Harvey yeah. Barnes usually uh, as two true wingers. And I do think that that is a, that's a setup that lets, that plays much more to Madison's strengths and sort of, because you have Wilford and Didi, you you can get away with playing Madison and Thielmans in front of him, and that does suggest to me that like it's a team that should be able to do more attacking than it does, which is why they're so frustrating, right? Like right. you look at that side and you see, wow, there's a really fun attacking side in there, and then it just hasn't shown up all that much yet. Yeah, uh, everyone. Not everyone. A lot of people started the fantasy season with Iose Perez expecting like, yeah, second striker, Brendan Rodgers, and it just did not work. Yeah. Um, So last thing on just team XG, I'm just, does it sort of work the same way as when we were talking about Vardy in regards to regressing towards a mean? Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure. And then, I mean, I mean, look, there are like, there are to some degree team effects. Like you're not surprised when good teams outperform their XG for some reason or another. Right. Uh, or at the other end of the table as well. Um, but so like the temptation here is every time a team diverges from XG to tell a story about why that's the case. And more often than not, much more often than not, the answer is not any one of those stories. Or it just it's, it's a story that won't persist. Um, you are almost always better off looking at the numbers and saying, that's what I expect this team to be. And honestly, the times when you're not better off are oftentimes not apparent until you look backwards in retrospect. Right. Um, and that's just like, the, and then like that's the fun challenge of doing analysis, right? Is 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 looking at all those instances and saying, is this for real? Probably not. Is this for real? Probably not. This one, well, maybe. Let's see. Like, and and that's 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 where the the art comes into the science, right? Um, I wanted to talk a bit about post shot XG. I, I I've heard yes. you guys talk about it on the double pivot. I've heard some other people talk about it. I. What is it? What does it tell us? Is do you think it'll you know be as widely so, used ever as as XG and and sort of yeah. enter the media? I don't think it'll ever be as widely used simply because it's not as widely useful for starters. Okay. okay. Um, so post shot XG is mostly useful for measuring keepers, 
Um, it could, in theory, at some point be used to measure, to, to sort of look for shooting skill in players as well and give us a, a little more data to do that. Um, there have been some studies over the years, one by uh, Devin Pluler, who is currently the head of analytics at Toronto FC, um, comes to mind. But it, so, so in general, what, what post-shot XG does, let me back up. What XG does is it looks at the quality of the shot at the point when the player is about to take it. And the supposition for this is that players have limited control over how well they are going to strike the ball. And the data bears this out. This is about shooting skill again. That one player is not meaningfully better overall at picking out the corner when they shoot the ball than another player is. However, when we're looking at keepers, keepers have to face the shots that, you know, where they end up going. So, you know, just because a player from 25 yards is unlikely to put it in the corner doesn't mean that that it's the same for a keeper no matter what. A keeper is facing a shot that either goes sailing over, right at them, goes into the corner, does whatever. So when we look at post-shot XG, we're looking at where the ball is ending up going, and we're doing that to measure keeper performances, basically. To look at, okay, how likely is this keeper to make the saves that they've made? How, you know, how much of a team's overperforming or underperforming against their defensive on the defensive side of the ball is down to the keeper making or not making saves and how much of it is down to other stuff. Um, It's, we don't know. We haven't had really reliable post shot XG data um, for a lot of years. So we're still sort of learning um, how predictive this stuff kind of is. Like, if a, if a keeper has a good season, does that mean they're likely to have another one? If a keeper has a good half season, does that mean the second half is likely to be better or, does, or are they going to heavily regress? We, we don't really know yet. I mean, one thing that we know is that the players that we tend to think of as good shot stoppers tend to perform well against post-shot XG. Um, but it is a useful thing, like... It's a useful thing to determine some specifics, but it doesn't have the general power that something like expected goals does. Yeah, that where my brain immediately goes is like the relationship between XG and post shot XG. That's what I'd be interested in. Like, it's, are there is, are there yes. bad XG shots that have higher than normal variance post shot XG? Like, are there yeah, shots that, that we are think are bad that? more often end up in the corner or something like that that we're missing. I don't know. So, I mean, that kind of thing, I think, would tend to end up getting captured by expected goals. Okay. What doesn't end up getting captured on the defensive side of the ball is, look, are you, um, like, a team that just has lucked into opposition missing the net a lot? is different than a team that has had a keeper stand on their head to keep the ball out of the net, right? Mm-hmm. One is the goalkeeper playing well. The other really is pretty close to just dumb luck, right? Like, if, if, you know, if you've got David De Gea who makes four fingertip saves to keep a game at nil-nil, that's one thing. If you have faced Manchester City and they have just for whatever reason blazed the ball over the bar from four times from point blank range, that's something else. And being able to separate out those two things is very useful in terms of telling the story of what's going on with these teams. Right. I also um, wonder if it's like 
you know, if you're one-on-one with Van Dyke, does he have a greater effect on the post-shot XG? Yeah, those because are because he's are like the kinds- bodying you when you're taking your shot or something like that. Those are really interesting questions, and there is some degree of question as to, you know, can you use post-shot XG in some way to help you capture not only goalkeeper performance but defensive performance. And like StatsBomb, we do have like, like we record the positions of every defender on every shot or every defender who's in frame on every shot. So we have sort of the ability to tie these things together. But again, because all this data is so new, we don't have a, these are all like exciting possibilities. Right. But part of what doing really rigorous analytics is, is like systematically grounding them in what we can show to be true. And by true, I mean, do numbers predict what's going to happen and do they predict themselves? So we know about plain old expected goals that after about five games, expected goals is pretty predictive of itself, meaning that your level now is fairly likely to be your level next week and the week after and the week after. And we know that they are pretty predictive of goals, right? We know that expected goals does a better job of predicting future goals than actual goals does. Um, And so what we want to do for all these other stats going forward is you want to build the same sort of grounding in showing what, you know, what does this reflect and how confident are we that what it reflects will continue into the future? That's what makes it useful. Right. And there's just not that many shots also. (laughs) like Right. I mean, that's that's the bottom line of what makes analytics in football so hard, so challenging is two things. One is there's so much that we don't know about midfield. That's very hard to capture in numbers. And two, it's just that there aren't a lot of shots to do what you do in like a sport like hockey, where like your basis for analytics can be, well, we've got so many shots, let's just chop them up into different categories and see which ones are good and which ones are bad. Whereas like you have to work so hard to get that data in in in, in football. And, yeah, and that's, I mean, I that's, think about baseball yeah. again. It's like yes. we're talking about 600 plate appearances in one season. Like, right. <laughs> and they're... And there are maybe 10 guys in a league in a year who'll take 100 shots. Like, that's just yeah. the, the way it works. Right. I'm going to interject with one of uh, a question from, from uh, one of our followers on, on Patreon in our Slack because it sounds like it was about what you were just talking about. So it's D Silva. He said, it's sort of a long question. He said, expected goals is a great analytic tool. It tells us a lot about the performance of an individual or a team over the course of a game or a series of games. What it doesn't do particularly well is make predictions about future performance. Given that football now is a reasonable size historical historic statistical data set, how does Michael feel about the idea of using more sophisticated probabilistic techniques, for example, Bayesian methods, or even the baseball-style sabermetrics techniques that take factors like form and fixtures into account in the determination of outcomes, and how applicable would methods like this actually be um, to the fantasy game? So, for starters, I would dispute the idea that expected goals isn't particularly predictable. Yeah, as I was saying it, I was like, okay. Um, Well, I mean... The questioner is right in that um, there's a lot of variance, but what we found is that expected goals does better than anything else, including goals, um, including shots, including shots on target. Right. Expected goals just does is more accurate at predicting both itself and and future outcomes, and 
there there are statist there are there are sophisticated statistical modeling tools you can use to try to get better at things. Like yes, you want to be taking strength of schedule into account, especially early in the season, and there are there are ways that you can do that when you are projecting expected goals into expected points into, you know, yeah. where you'll finish in the table. But really, like it's hard. It's really, really hard to improve on expected goals. Um, one of the things, specifically with with the sort of like Pythagor- the Pythagorean stuff, is that throwing draws into the mix um, complicates it no end, way more than people realize. Um, to to do those kinds of predictions that that work very, very well in baseball. Um, when you go from wins and losses to wins, losses, and draws, and and three point one point zero points, it, it, it's just it becomes immensely more complicated. Um, and and it's ve- it is very 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 hard to do well. And then you get to the point of are the little bits of predictive power that you're doing with that worth it when you're not doing any added explanatory work like when you're doing when you're doing that kind of statistical work you don't have any you know you you add no why you're not saying this is a better prediction because xyz is going to happen on the field you're it's it's a purely numbers thing it's incredibly computationally heavy and it frankly oftentimes adds nothing early in the season you know there are there are things you want to do to um like how you account for Last year, how you account for how good a team you expect to be if players come and go. There's there's room there. But once you get five, six, seven games into the season, really like early on, it becomes very hard to to add predictive power um, to, to the point where I think a lot of people in the industry working with teams have, have looked towards um, other kinds of work as potentially more fruitful. Gotcha. All right. That a lot of that was over my head, but I hope our I hope D Silva's <laughs> satisfied, you know. Um I wanted to also talk about XA and just assists sure. in general, the other main way of getting points in fantasy, very important. Um it seems to me just, you know, as a non statistician type that XA would do a worse job of describing how creative somebody might be than XG. Just That's because correct. yeah. Yeah, like you need it to result into a shot for it to count towards X, XA, whereas if a shot is blocked or misses or whatever, it still counts towards XG. So what other numbers could we look at maybe to to, to figure yeah. out how likely a player is to rack up assists? Yeah, right. So, I mean, X, you know, looking at the sort of the amount of expected goals a player has assisted is useful. Like, I mean, you, you want to know if a player is like, you know, assisted a ton of shots and then his strikers have just missed a bunch. Like, right. Yeah. It's good to know, but you are correct that it, it misses a big chunk. And this is, this is a natural struggle. This is the, the other part of the thing that I was, I was saying is so difficult about stats is that so much of what's passing of what passing is, is still hard to capture. What I will say is, I mean, there, there are, there are, there are some very basic things you want to look at, right? Like I'm, that I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this knows. So it's like you want to know who's on set pieces, right? Like yeah. the, the 
That's that's obvious, and that's like a statistical thing. Um, you want to know who is <laughs> taking set pieces because they'll have the opportunity to to, to generate assists. Um, you know, key you, passes, chances created. Yeah, I mean, all all of that stuff is like expected is like like expected oh, assisted, yeah. but just a little bit worse. True, um, true, true. Yeah, the stuff maybe you want to look at is passes into the box. You know, if, if a player is passing the ball a lot. Uh, is make is completing or attempting a lot of passes into the box but not assisting a lot of shots or expected goals that might be something to pay attention to as a player who might start doing that um that's the you know another yeah. thing to look at is okay now how many of the the passes into the box are crosses versus not crosses because a player who is playing a lot of passes into the box that aren't crosses is somebody who is probably putting players in really good positions um a player who is crossing the ball a lot might also be good for a good number of assists especially if like they're the primary player on their team who is moving the ball into the box. So that's another that's another thing that's very useful to look at is is not only the raw number of does this player pass the ball into the box a lot, but sort of compared with his own teammates, right? So can you find the guy who is the creative hub? Can like you find Trent, the, Trent Alexander Arnold? I guess yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Who's like an unlikely like an, an, an unlikely one? But you know, you look at the numbers, and for sure that pops up. Um, but but again, then you're looking at okay, you know. A guy who has the lion's share of the passes into the box for his team, even if maybe he has a lower total number, might be a useful guy to to look for. Um, But basically what you're trying to do is specifically look for numbers that Expecticals Assisted won't capture. Right, so we can use it in conjunction, yeah. Right, and that is who are players that move the ball into shooting opportunity, into areas of the field where the ball is shot a lot, but have not complete, but have not racked up the the shot assists, right? Have not racked up the key passes. So do you have any of those guys in mind? (laughs) I don't mean to put you on the spot, but... No, I honestly do not because for whatever reason this year so this year i would say actually that like if you were gonna look at it you sort of have the opposite thing going on where like a team like spurs should be should have somebody who's doing that a lot and doesn't and you would maybe expect now with a change of manager that like the good players who we know can be good should start being good um but there are not, for whatever reason, a lot of players that jump out this season as guys that are like not creating a lot of expected assists, but that you might expect them to going forward, except to the degree that we've talked about Lester already, are they going to start playing differently? Um, right. And then like a guy like James Madison you know, pops, right? A guy who's on the ball all the time in the final third, but hasn't had a lot of opportunities to do that in the final third because they've played conservatively. If he moves inside from the left wing fairly permanently and Leicester start playing more aggressively, like I'm not going to like shock anybody with that with that sort of suggestion. Right. No, but it's not all about shock. It's also about right. just being more confident in, in buying yes. a player in fantasy, you know? But like I mean, I th- I think what's what's interesting about these moments, right, is that like you get to the point where you're combining stats with a lot of tactical analysis. And that's like what good analytics is all the time. But, you know, when we're telling these stories, <laughs> what we're looking for is 
coherent ideas that numbers back up, less so that like, oh, here's a number to pay attention to. Right. I got it. Yeah, it's all about combining it with the story. I like that. Yep. Yep. Um, the last thing that a lot of people wrote in about, and I, we definitely talked to Kaylee about it too, and I, it's one of those undefinable things, but everyone wants to know about form and what is form? Is sure. it real? Is it variance? How much predictive value does form have? Does that change from player to player? Like all of these so, things. Okay, so I would start with. A big picture idea is that form has very little predictive value, which is to say that for everybody who has three good weeks and then has a fourth good week, there is somebody that has three good weeks and then has a bad week. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not to say, again, that individual cases can't present themselves where you feel very confident. You know, look, if... I'll go back to Lester here, right? Like, if you watch Lester play an extra attacker for three weeks in a row and their attack ticks up, so, you know, Madison is getting more shots and assists and all of a sudden Madison looks like a better player. Well, is that is that momentum? Is that form? Or is there a <laughs> right. tactical thing that's changed? And it's kind of both. And so you look at that and you say, oh, okay, I, I, there's, there's something concrete for me to hang my hat on other than, oh, he's just scored a couple weeks in a row. I think, you know, variance is a tricky subject because a thing that we often say with confidence is that something cannot continue like this for the long term. But that doesn't mean that it's like dumb luck, right? Like, you know, if if a player is playing well for a month and then they stop playing well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were just getting lucky for that month. Maybe they had good matchups. Maybe they slept well on a new mattress. Maybe, like, who knows? Like, lots of stuff happens in the world that is real for a period of time but does not last forever. The thing is we just can't pick out and, like, when it's going to stop and when it's going to start, and we end up doing more harm to our predictive ability when we keep trying. So it's not that form isn't or can't be real. It's just that we can't tell when it's going to stop. Right, and we kind of can't tell when it's real or when it's luck. Also, exactly. It's just it's, <laughs> so just, it's just a nightmare, yeah. basically. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. The, the answer is like, sure, maybe it's real, but what difference does that make to you? Because it's not actually going to help you. <laughs> right. It's sort of like when uh, Bugs Bunny put, you know, the thing over the water bottle that said like special juice <laughs> or whatever, and gave it to all the players. Yeah, I right. understand. Yeah. Uh, something like that. Um, all right, and then we had one more question, and then let's wrap up. So up your arsenal on our Slack said, Pulisic is obviously in fantastic form right now. Is there anything in the stats that say he's leveled up his game, or is he just in a purple patch? Well, I mean, the stat take that applies to him and applies in many of the cases when it gets asked is that most players are not as bad as people think they are when they are getting slagged and not as good as people think they are when they are on fire. Pulisic is a really talented young player and was quite successful at a very high level in the Bundesliga at a very young age. So when he comes over to Chelsea and he's getting you know, very few minutes for the first 
month or six weeks of the season and playing, frankly, quite fine when he's on the field. Um, it's fair to look at that and say, boy, he's getting a little bit of the short end of the stick here. He's better than he's being treated. That doesn't mean that he should necessarily be the first name on the, the team sheet or anything, but like he's clearly a good enough player to be a contributor at Chelsea even before he caught fire. Now, the thing he does really, really well is find space in the box to receive the ball. Um, and when you are in the penalty box with the ball at your feet a lot, you rack up lots of good things. That's just kind of how it works, right? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a very useful skill. Yes. Now, look, I mean, his goal scoring recently has been way out <laughs> over his numbers. And I think yeah. sort of, if you go back and say, look at the, the, the hat trick match um, the last week in October that, that kicked it all off, uh, you will see a perfect example of a player who put himself in good positions and then got fairly lucky that those good positions turned into goals. That's fine. Like, that's why you put yourself in good positions, but you don't expect it to happen every time. But I think the key thing to remember is that as long as he is continuing to do the thing he does well, even as the goals slow down, you would expect him to be a, 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 a you know, a player who's more than good enough to be, to be a starter at this level. Um, now, Chelsea have a number of wingers who are arguably more than good enough to be a starter at this level, um, especially as they get healthy. You know, Callum Hudson-Odoi turns into be turns out to be what everybody hopes he will be. Um, and you still have him and Pulley and William is having like a revitalized year despite being old. And Pedro is there. Like, there's a lot of players. Uh, Mount sometimes it's, plays on the so wing too. What is William really good at? And you say he has, he's having like a big year because from fantasy perspective, he's pretty much just a waste of space and taking Callum yes. and Adoy's place. But I yes. had this. I had the feeling that he's actually been good this year, but can you tell me why? What, what's he sure. Doing? I mean, I think the thing that he is quite good at is running transition from the wing, right? So getting the ball up the field quickly to dangerous players who are attacking, and then also being a presence in attack. So, like, when he scores goals, like, they usually come from set pieces. Um, so like, that's not necessarily the thing that you're looking for, but what you're looking for is when the midfielders win the ball, do they get it to William? And then does William quickly get it up the field to somebody else when he's playing? Well, that's what he's doing. And it transitions Chelsea who are playing like a very up and down game into attack quickly. Um, it's funny because so, I feel like the, the large media narrative, the majority of the public, like just does not consider any of these things that you just said about Pulisic or Willian as skills. Like people think, yeah. people think of what a player is good or bad at. I feel like it's limited to like finishing. Are they fast? Can they pass? Well, passing, right? Yeah. Passing is sort of the great mystery and question mark of the sport, which is kind of what makes it wonderful. It's very resistant to statistical analysis in a, in a lot of like interesting ways. Um, but yeah, like the idea of being good at passing in transition or the idea of being good at getting open in the box right. are like, they're things that are integral to like, having skills that combine to make a strong team, but they are things that they are not what your eye is drawn to while you watch the match. They are not really things that um, 
if you're playing fantasy, are necessarily going to be accounted for. Quite frankly, if they're things that you're doing statistical analytic work, they are not off. They are often not immediately apparent. They're the things that you really have to dig and pry and do work to find. But they are also. Like, we can say with confidence that those things in the final third are very important to winning and losing games, and we can sort of surmise that we expect them to be in midfield once we can figure it out statistically. <laughs> right. If we can figure it out statistically. Yes. All right. So I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. It's been about an hour. So, Mike, where can people read your work, hear you speak, follow you on social media, all of that stuff? Sure. So I'm the managing editor at statsbomb.com, and we have tons of smart articles based on our numbers and our, you know, stats and analytics and all that stuff uh, across leagues. So, you know, not just the Premier League, but uh, Bundesliga, Serie A, you know, La Liga. All, all that jazz. Um, you can hear me talk on the Double Pivot podcast. Uh, we do two shows a week, one for free, one on a Patreon subscription. Uh, that's what I, me and Michael Cayley co-host it. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at the M underscore L underscore G, where I am entirely too online. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm super happy we were able to put this together. Thanks so much for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Check us out at fmlfpl.com. Follow us on Twitter at fmlfpl. Support us at patreon.com slash fmlfpl. Subscribe, rate, review, and cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.